welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Kirsten Lopez. On today's episode, we have two of the founders of the Disabled Archaeologists Network, Dr. Katie Kinkoff and Alice Wolf. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for the invite. We are thrilled to have you. And I mean, as soon as I learned about the Disabled Archaeologist Network, I was very curious. I feel like it's something we definitely need in our field and just I'm looking forward to learning more about it. And to jump right in, um, Katie or Alice, uh, let's introduce you to our listeners. I, whomever would like to go first, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do in archaeology? Um yeah, so I'm Alice Wolf. I'm a PhD candidate in medieval archaeology at Cornell University. Um, I'm an archaeobotanist, and I work on agriculture, climate change, and weeds and human and plant responses to climate change in the medieval period in England. Oh, that's fun. Do you look at the Little Ice Age? I do, yes. Um, and also the late antique Little Ice Age and the medieval warm period and sort of everything in between. Um, I am uh, Katie Kinkoff. I am an assistant professor at Cal Poly Pomona, um, and I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, and I've been here since about 2020. Uh, I teach classes actually more in biological anthropology, and I'm a bioarchaeologist. So my um, PhD training is in bioarchaeology. Um, I did my PhD at UC Berkeley, and uh, I've been working a lot on like disability issues in bioarchaeology. So my research is is kind of both on the disability community, disability theory side, and then also on the more like skeletal biology side of things. Oh, that's really cool. And so are you looking for disability in the past through looking at human remains? Yeah. So some, some of what I do is looking at health and disease um, and looking at biomechanics, skeletal biomechanics. And then I also am really interested in thinking about how um, disability theory in contemporary contexts can be used to, th- to kind of rethink how we even think about disability in the past. So not just like applying our ideas of disability now, but thinking kind of more broadly about what disability means um, in the past. That is so cool. I feel like we could have a podcast episode just talking about both of your research um, backgrounds because those both sound absolutely fascinating and fields that I personally really enjoy myself. So (laughs) thank you for sharing that. Well, to dive right in, why have the disability, or apologies, why have the Disabled Archaeologists Network? What brought you both to it? Um, I think in at least, you know, my kind of origin story for the Disabled Archaeologist Network um, is that there were a lot of us before 2020 um, and before 2021 who were doing disability organizing and and having conversations about disability in our own kind of little circles. Um, Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really after uh, a session at the Society for Historical Archaeology that was a virtual session um, in January 2021 that I think a bunch of people were in the same space and we were like, oh, we should we should start a group um, mm-hmm. that is bringing people together across all these different areas because I think like as a bioarchaeologist, you know, I don't necessarily interact with people um, who are doing like, his, like other kinds of archaeology. Um, 
And so I think COVID kind of made things easier to meet people um, and to connect in a way. And so I think like to me, Dan was kind of founded through this kind of collective effort that we had to to meet this collective need that we all had. And I think COVID really made disability more prominent for a lot of people. People started thinking about disability more, um, not only because COVID is kind of disabling itself, but but also just because of the circumstances, I think. Um, and so, so to me, like people have been doing this work um, in archaeology, in biological anthropology, in anthropology for for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really until more recently that we started thinking like, okay, we need a network where we can actually like put people all together. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Alice, would you like to add to that? Yeah. So I guess my sort of origin story is I was not at the SHA virtual meeting. Um, I found out about Dan uh, when Laura Heath Stout tweeted about it mm-hmm. um, and was sort of like, hey, a group of us are interested in, we're holding like a meeting for disabled archaeologists. And I couldn't make that original meeting, but I was like, can you keep me in the loop on anything else? And so when she was like, we're planning on starting, you know, a, a group, like an organizing professional network, I was like, yeah, I'm in, sign me up. Um, because I'm a disabled archaeologist and I've, but I've been sort of working, I don't really work on disability. And I, all of my experience in the field were very like random connections. So previously, um, the dig I work at in the UK, I had worked at a very inaccessible dig and I switched Mm -hmm. to working at a more accessible project where um, Teresa O'Mahony, who is the founder of the Enabled Archaeology Foundation, um, she did, which in 2018, she was doing a um, sort of a test run of her enabled field methods. Um, She was doing sort of a test case study at our dig. And so we built like a ramp into the trench and we just, and everything was just like made really accessible. And so talking to her, I was, was really sort of a foundational moment for me back in 2018. But, um, uh, and so I was sort of thinking, this has been something that I'd been thinking about for a long time and had sort of been like, well, I know a lot of disabled archeologists, but we don't really have a group. And then Teresa died in 2019. And it's, I was sort of felt like things were not really moving forward. So when I heard about this group from Laura, I was just like, yes, this is a way to sort of, I don't know, help Teresa's memory live on and keep the work that she was doing going um, in the US for me rather than in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, and I think I just wanted to add, like, I think Laura, I wish Laura was here, um, but Laura heast out is kind of one of the people who's who's really been involved in Dan from the very beginning. And I think part of Dan is partially like part of her vision that comes from her research. And, you know, her research is actually kind of on the experiences of archaeologists. And I think that research was really important in kind of moving, moving things forward for Dan and mm-hmm. getting, getting people to be like, oh, this is something we really need. Agreed. And uh, we've talked to uh, Laura a little bit in the past um, about her work. And I think it's incredible that this is coming to the forefront. And I I love seeing what Dan is doing. And I am hoping that it maybe as we're moving along, we're just seeing more and more inclusivity in the field and on in many, many aspects. And just looking at 
your mission statement um I don't, I won't read the entire thing, but it, it's just, it's so lovely. It just says, um, the Disabled Archaeologist Network, Dan, is a coalition of disabled archaeologists committed to providing an open and welcoming space to all disabled and disability questioning people. Um, the Dan operates under the premise that disability is a social, political, and intersectional lived experience. And it goes into like you're building a community and um, how we can um, be more inclusive and have better accessibility on many different levels of archaeology. And that also, I think, gets into the language behind um, what your mission statement is. And and we discussed before the podcast about the language on disability. And I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about what does the term disabled mean, especially for the uh, network? Yeah, so I think, you know, when we crafted that mission statement, we put a lot of time into thinking about the language that we were using and did, you know, like what the name was actually going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we spent a lot of time like going back and forth to, to be disabled, um, you know, like kind of what... I guess now I'm having a brain fart, so this is like, you know. That's okay. <laughs> we all have them. Yeah. Um, but I guess like one of the things with Dan that we really wanted to um, to emphasize is that disability is not just a biological or medical experience. And this really like goes back to the different models of disability. So among people who study disability as like a – as an academic, you know, like endeavor, um, there are like a few different models of disability and those are kind of like broken up into like social models of disability and and deficit models of disability. Um, And so social models of disability are like, okay, so social models of disability are really like thinking about disability as something that is crafted or is, is like part of a social identity or social experience. So that, um, that disability is like people's attitudes about about pe- when body people's bodies are different, um, mm-hmm. like all of these ideas about how um, bodies are like social entities. And deficit models incorporate lots of different um, lots of different models. Like the medical model is probably the one most people are familiar with, and this is just like the way that doctors think about disability. So thinking about disability is like a bad thing that we have to fix or cure. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to, so if we see an individual in a wheelchair per se, it's like, oh, well, they can't walk. And so that is inherently a negative as opposed to just having a different, different body system. Yeah. And, and the social model would say something like, um, if we didn't have stairs, then people in wheelchairs like wouldn't be disabled. And so that's one of the critiques of the social model is that it the social model also doesn't really account for um, like some of the other parts of disability because disability is a physical experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's not very, it's kind of disingenuous to say that it's not a, a physical experience. Um, but also we don't want to like reduce people just down to like the things that your body does or doesn't do. Um, and so, so disability theorists are kind of trying to like resolve some of those issues. And so when we were thinking about Dan and, and the title for Dan and the language we wanted to use, we were really trying to think about um, 
how to like incorporate lots of people with different different disability identities. And so that's why like on our website, you know, we have we like list disability questioning people um, mm-hmm. as people were interested in, in, you know, incorporating. And that was the term that I came up with that a lot of people have questions about, which is funny, but, um, you know, disability questioning, just meaning like, if you're not sure if you're disabled, you're like, maybe I'm disabled, maybe I'm not, I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like that term a lot because it, it like you said, it made me question. <laughs> um, it's like, what does that mean? And I think I know for myself growing up, the concept of being disabled has always been considered more of a, like a negative. And so I like that you guys are putting it, not it, that it's just, it just is. It, it's neither negative, positive. It just, it's a, you just are. And um I just find the language around this so fascinating, but I also worry that I'm going to stick my foot in my mouth because like, what would then the, what would be then the term for somebody who is non-disabled? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people just use the term non-disabled okay. um, and, and a lot of disabled people like to say non-disabled because it still kind of centers um, disability as like not a bad thing. Um, whereas like, if you say like able-bodied, then, that there's like a whole world of of literature about able-bodiedness and and whether or not that's like you know something that you have to be do you have to be able-bodied um we live in like a a very uh kind of like capitalist system where able-bodiedness is kind of required and you can definitely say that for archaeology in terms of a lot of the jobs that we see out there um, are like, you have to be able to hike this far. You have to be able to carry this much of a load. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And I feel like that's pretty pervasive in our field in general that like, well, does every job actually require this? I mean, there are plenty of compliance positions that do not. And can how can we make these positions less focused on being, um, I guess, you know, be a heavy lifter when a lot of times that's not necessarily a needed thing. And I guess perhaps in archaeology, that's just a very pervasive concept that and maybe the Indiana Jones, uh, um, you know, rubbing off on everything that's like, well, you have to be a swashbuckling, you know, individual to be an archaeologist. And so uh, do you feel like Dan is confronting some of that too, that that doesn't necessarily have to be what archaeology is all about. Yeah, I think it's a couple of different things because, again, for me, um, one of the really influential people in my life was Teresa, and she was very dedicated to saying that fieldwork can be accessible and should be accessible to people with physical disabilities, with mental disabilities, with any sort of disability. Um, She was very much a proponent of making fieldwork accessible. So I think that's a really big thing for me personally um, that I'm focused on. But I think that you're right that there is also a focus on or sort of a need to be like, well, even if you can't find an accessible dig, you can still be an archaeologist. There's other ways to do archaeology. um, And there are other things that are important to archaeology. So I think it's sort of a mixture of a bunch of different things because I don't want to give the impression that fieldwork is always inaccessible to people mm-hmm. with all sorts of disabilities. Um, That's a very because, good point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about accommodations and whatnot. How, how can we make um, fieldwork a far more accessible 
thing. It's because, it, yeah, I guess the way I framed it is it doesn't have to necessarily be either or. It's like you're in the office or you're in the field. Well, I think one of the things that really comes up here is like this idea of ableism. And we, you know, we, I think we would be remiss to not like mention ableism when we're talking about disability because it's not, you know, the conversations about, about disability being good or bad and like people's individual experiences with disability. For some people, being disabled is a negative experience and, and that's totally, totally acceptable and fine for them. Um, and for some people, it's a positive experience. But the thing that really politicizes disability and brings it, I think, into the into the space where Dan is is trying to do advocacy and activism work is is ableism. And ableism is just the belief that able-bodiedness is like the natural and ideal way of existing in the world. And this is like there are so many actions that institutions and, and individual people take um, that kind of like enforce ableism in um, in like professional settings. So like denying disability accommodations is is one example of that. And I think um, like Alice was saying, you know, the, the field school that she went to is very much like an anti-ableist um, field school. I'm really glad you brought that up. And just again, in terms of, because like you said earlier with this, the term able-bodied versus disabled. And it, it, it I do think just the concept of ableism, I think on many different levels, not just physically, um, is a major, major issue in our field. Just even, I, I mean, in my own experience of just, it's like I twisted an ankle and they're like, well, no, now, you, now you're a terrible archaeologist. Like, but I can't help the fact that I twisted an ankle. And then you get to the more extreme side of that where um, you may or may not be able to survey in the way that a company may want, but there's probably another way to do it. But just the way we're so used to doing things makes it more difficult to change, I guess, make make change in that field where people are like, nope, this is how how we do X, Y, and Z, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there are a lot of like physical norms in archaeology, right? There's like a way to do things that's the proper way. Um, the proper way to to excavate or to do any kind of like analyses, things like that. There's just a, a specific um, physicality that's expected. And I think that that's something that's so great about feminist archaeology, that feminist archaeology has kind of like dealt with some of these things. Um, and I think uh, disability archaeology is kind of like trying to do kind of expand that work and, and do even more. Well, that is a wonderful spot to end on for our first segment. Um, when we come back, we will discuss more about um, what Dan has been doing for um, advocacy and how to help people figure out arranging accommodations and all kinds of stuff. So we'll see you when we get back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. 
We're here with uh, two of the members and founders of the Disabled Archaeologist Network, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Dan and um, what the organization is currently doing. So who would like to kick off a little bit about the different goals of what you're currently doing? Um, what are some of the um, different uh, different programs and whatnot that Dan is getting into? So I can talk a little bit about this. Um, a couple of the things that we're working on is, or one of the things we're working on is a series of professional development webinars. So these are events that are we're trying to hold once every couple of months or so um, online about various topics related to being a disabled archaeologist. So one that I'm working on with Laura, we're trying to de- that we're trying to develop for the early fall is on applying to grad school. Oh, um, nice. So we're asking. We've got a couple of different people signed up. We're still looking for another third participant, but we're hoping to schedule it for the early fall so that we can have a webinar where we just talk to people who are either in graduate school, are professors who have been on admissions committees, or who are have graduated from their their career and are working on their careers about their experience applying to graduate school as a disabled archeologist. Um, what are the questions you ask? What sort of things do you look for in a program? Do you disclose or not when you're applying? Um, because it's something that might make a very powerful personal statement, but you also don't necessarily want to reveal that information about yourself to people you haven't met. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to hold that and it'll be about an hour, each webinar is about an hour and a half long. And it starts off with sort of one interviewer talking to the panelists, and then uh, we open it up to Q&A from the audience um, and ideally develop some resources to share with people who have attended the webinar afterwards. I look forward to the this next one coming up about graduate schools because that definitely brings up a lot of questions I had never considered um, in terms of the application process and seems like a lot on top of the application of having to do all that um, type of consideration um, in terms of accommodation and whatnot. So that's that sounds really, really informative. So kudos. Uh, looking forward to that. And I see the um, two you've uh, already conducted are self-care in the field and then finding a field school and arranging accommodations. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about each of those uh, professional development series? Uh, the most, I think the most recent one we did, I, I'm losing track of which order they happened in, but I think the most recent one we did was on finding a field school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we tried to do was get get participants with a mixture of um, disability types, people with physical disabilities, people with sort of more mental illnesses, people with other like developmental disabilities, um, and get them together and ask and have a discussion about their um their experiences on field schools and what sort of green flags they would look for in a field school, things like that. Um, I believe there's a recording that should come up on our website, but we had some technical issues. There were some technical difficulties with some of the participants um, during the webinar. So I don't know if the recording happened the way we wanted it to happen. But the idea with these is we'd like to record them and put them up on our website so that they can um, be available in the future, I think. That's fantastic. And I think I think both of them actually are uh, available on mm-hmm. on our website now. I believe they there are, are I, YouTube I, links. So <laughs> they're really really interesting. Um, and I guess that's something again I had not had to consider too much um, in the past about field schools. Um, is it difficult to 
um, arrange accommodations uh, for uh, field schools? Because Alice, you mentioned um, the field school where ramps were put in and went up. But uh, is that a relatively common thing that's happening um, now? Because I definitely know it wasn't something I know when I went to field school that was um, as available. So is that something that's changing in a positive direction or is it something that people really have to advocate for themselves? Um, just speaking about the field school I work at, um, because I'm a, I've been a staff member there since 2018, um, I wouldn't say this is common. I know when Teresa was there in 2018, she said she had been there previously in 2016 as and used this as her field school. And she said it was because it was the only field school in the UK that she applied to that accepted her. Um, all of the other field schools were like, we can't accommodate your disabilities. And um, they, and so we were just the only project that was able to um, accommodate her. So I don't think that was back in, you know, 2016. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's become more common. Um, Obviously there are some times when you just physically can't set up like a ramp, Um, Mm -hmm. like the trench is just too small and it doesn't accommodate it. So there are other things you can do. Um, or other ways you can include people in the actual digging process. So for example, for ours, we have with my project, we have one main trench right now, which has is just not able to accommodate a, a, um, a ramp. But instead, we have smaller side trenches that don't require ramps um, to get to. And that's how we try to keep the project sort of accessible. For me, when I was looking for a field project, I'm an environmental archaeologist, so I wasn't really looking to dig. I was just looking for a place where I could do environmental archaeology. And they were like, that's great. We're looking for an environmental archaeologist to supervise um, their processing. So things sort of worked out for me in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I wouldn't say that it's common. Okay. I was just going to say that I think it's it's actually really uncommon to have... um, students with disabilities be accommodated at field schools, um, in part, especially like in the American context, there's just not the legal protection provided by the Americans with Disabilities Act is just not that strong um, in a lot of cases. So there's not a requirement to accommodate um, disabilities if if the accommodations are considered like unreasonable. Um, And this is kind of the way that people get around accommodating um, disabled students. And so that's like a really problem. It's a really problematic kind of part of the U.S. legal legal protections um, for disabled people. And that's part of I think that's part of why Dan exists, really, is to do some of this like advocacy work and to try to like kind of promote cultural shift, like a cultural shift around um, field school culture and, and things like that, because this is something that really has to come from the people who are organizing the field school. Is this excuse often, I mean, saying like, oh, well, it's an unreasonable ask. Is it usually because of funding? Yeah, I mean, funding can be part of it. Um, it could also just be like a time time request that it would take mm-hmm. the PI like too much time. There's really not, I think one of the issues is just there aren't a lot of avenues for people to pursue um, like legal action, if if somebody denies their request, it's it's really hard to be a disabled student and to try to get um, you know any kind of like legal recourse. Yeah, because then you're talking about involving a lawyer, um, and like you know just going from there. And and it, a lot of people are just like, oh, is it worth it? You know, to to involve a lawyer to pay for a lawyer um, when you also have to like 
just go to field school. You know, you just want to go to field school and get that experience. You're not necessarily trying to like have some kind of big um, fight about things also. Mm -hmm. Not fair enough. Uh, Kirsten, were you hoping to? Yeah. So I was also just wondering like a couple of things. One is um, green flags were mentioned earlier. Like what are some things that uh, people can look for that might indicate that a field school would be more accommodating. Um, and the other thing that um, I was kind of wondering about is if some of the reason why accommodations are often granted is there, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily always malicious, but maybe a lack of creative thinking or not being able to really envision how to do an accommodation um, for, I mean, each disability is different and the accommodation would, would vary. Um, but just out of lack of exposure to what those accommodations might look like, there's probably, I can imagine some resistance to being like, I don't even know how to approach that. No, <laughs> like it's hard enough to get this field school rolling as is. Um, so I can, I can see that being a, a hurdle um, and a barrier for, from both ends in trying to get something sort of uh, moving or in, in the right direction. I don't know if you guys yeah. have I, I absolutely think that most people who are denying accommodations are not doing so from a place of malice or, or bad intent. I think people are trying to keep people safe um, in a lot of circumstances. And so, you know, if if one of the kind of accommodations that you need is to be like in relatively close proximity to a hospital, for example, um, you know, maybe you you need the option to have emergency care. Um that's not going to be something that every field school can accommodate, right? Depending on the location um, yeah. and the resources. So I think that a lot of times people are coming to this from a place of of care and trying to keep students safe. Um, but the thing that I think happens a lot is that people try to make those decisions for other people. So mm -hmm. a lot of times PIs will just kind of say like, oh, I don't think I could do that. Um, and, and that's kind of where the conversation ends. Or the thing that happens is, like you say, people don't know what accommodations to offer. And a lot of times students don't know what accommodations to ask for. Um, because that's one of the things about the, at least in the U.S. context, is that um, the ADA requires self-advocacy. So you actually have to request your own accommodations. It's not like when you're a student. Um, so just like a little, you know, public policy bit here is that section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act um, from 1973, which is this law that requires public schools to evaluate children for disabilities mm -hmm. um, at their parents' request. So basically this law requires public schools to do all of the work um, getting students to have accommodations. And when you leave public school, when you leave like high school in the U.S., um, it becomes your responsibility as the individual to advocate for yourself. And so there's no requirement for anybody to offer you accommodations. You have to request them. And 
in that request process, you have to suggest what a reasonable accommodation would be. And so a lot of people don't even know, a lot of disabled people don't even know like what a reasonable request is. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of pressure to put on students that don't have that much um, authority in the first place. Um, That's a lot to put on, I mean, a 20 year old per se, Um, because there's definitely things I, and when I was a student um, being dyslexic and probably needed some some extra help um, in in college, I would I didn't even know I would have been able to advocate for myself in any way, shape, or form. And so that's a lot to put on a, a student. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that there's this amazing resource that I want people to know about that's called the Job Accommodation Network, and they have like a list of disabilities, which, you know, is very much in a medical model, but um, they have a list of disabilities and um, diagnoses that people may have with suggested accommodations and oh. suggested like limitations for each of those. So, you know, the, the some of the framing is a little problematic because it's, it's using this medical model and this kind of like deficit model about like limitation, but it's really helpful because they have suggested accommodations for all of these different Um, conditions and including things like pregnancy. So there are like really great resources for people um, on this website who, you know, are like trying to get help kind of figuring out what some of these um, accommodations could be. Mm -hmm. Alice, did you want to jump in? Oh, yeah. I was just going to add that I think the other thing for uh, with the self-advocacy part for students is that I know for me, um, it would have been impossible to request accommodations ahead of time because I had no idea what to expect before I went to my first training dig in 2013. That's a good um, point. So if you've never, if you're in a situation that you've never been in before, you might encounter problems that you didn't realize you were going to have or things might come up that you weren't expecting. So that's why I think it's one of the other goals that we have for Dan is to eventually try to put together some sort of we're still working on what it would look like, but maybe some sort of handbook or some sort of website, some mm-hmm. sort of I, some sort of resource that suggests possible accommodations for different um, different issues that might arise during field work, so that people, uh, especially like dig directors, might have a better sense of what to do because sometimes these problems might arise in the middle of the field season and you you're in an isolated place. And you're there and you have this problem and it's sort of up to you and the dig director to figure out what's going on and how to solve it. So um, coming up with sort of a list of accommodations and things that might work or could be applied is sort of a long-term goal for us. That's awesome. And I think like that is part of the mission of Dan is like to take some of this work off of individuals and to kind of collectively share the burden of that work. Because I think a lot of times disabled people are kind of tasked with doing this work over and over again and like reinventing the wheel and doing Mm -hmm. this, you know, everywhere all the time. And so I think one of the things that we had talked about, like Alice said, is kind of creating a guide that's kind of collectively crowdsourced information that's available to PIs who want to design projects that are, that are better. Um, And we've even kind of talked about maybe like having a badging program or something where you can get like a consultation with us and have, um, you know, some kind of little like badge on your field school that you're an accessible field schooler, that you've met some kind of like basic criteria. 
also so that students, you know, can recognize like, oh, this is a field school that might be accessible to me. Oh, that is a fantastic idea. Because at least that would that would take a, um, a lot of the work out of for students trying to just figure out, is a field school even possible? And if that badge were on it, they'd just be like, oh, okay, we're good. All right. Um, and one thing I wanted to say, um, we're getting close to the end of this segment, but I do really appreciate that you include mental health in a lot of this as well. Um, that I, I feel like that, like you, you've mentioned before, there's such a focus on the physicality, and um, I appreciated the uh, professional development series on self care and talk about mental health. And we've talked with um, Dr. Alex Fitzpatrick a lot about mental health as well, and I just I appreciate that that's included as part of this and making sure you're taking care of yourself, but also having field schools that are aware of potential mental health issues and then being more supportive of that, I think would be a great step forward as well. I want to second that because it's one of the things that I encountered um, in the field, not just as a field archaeologist, but um, teaching the field schools is the isolation Mm -hmm. um, that you don't necessarily expect from being in a field school, because a lot of, not all of them, obviously, but um, a lot of field schools, especially in the West, tend to be in remote locations. So whether that's in a community um, that can be um, small and somewhat insular, um, there can be a certain uh, challenge with interacting with those communities sometimes. Um, or even just uh, like the only interactions you have are with your field school, fellow field mm-hmm. school students and staff for two months. That can um, be a lot. <laughs> it can be a lot <laughs> emotionally for anyone. And I feel like if you know that you struggle with um, uh, mental health challenges, you know, whatever those may be, um, and just going into it being like, okay, so this is a thing. Um, and having, cause I feel like it's something that hits a lot of people unexpectedly and having that is something that, um, whether it be, um, known accommodations, like you're saying, like things that you can ask for in those situations and also just for uh, field school staff and, um, PIs to have that, like in theory they know but it's also one of those you know unseen it's a it's there's no physicality to it um often ignored or um you know dismissed aspect of the challenges uh, that field schools can bring on for for people and i remember i had one student at one point that was just like i don't want to be an archaeologist anymore this is too too much um, and a lot of it was the, the emotional, um, toll that it took just being isolated and, and that process, um, and dealing with, you know, other people's personalities and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was their big thing. So there, that was what, you know, kind of averted them from really kind of pursuing archeology, span which is unfortunate. And that's where like, I feel if there were better supports in place, um, 
that might have helped that student a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's great that we're talking about these things and that this is coming more to the forefront. We appreciate definitely what Dan is doing. Um, when we come back in the next segment, uh, talk about um, the workshops that are being organized in the future. We'll be back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We're here with Allison Katie from the Disabled Archaeologist Network, and we're going to get into more about what they're doing in the future. And Kirsten, you have some questions to kick us off. Yeah. So talking about the future, we in the last segment, we talked a little bit about field schools and getting into the field. Um, but as a working CRM archaeologist myself, I had some questions on how people can look forward into their careers. How do you step out of field school into work um, and specifically around what um, to look for and how how people can approach um, looking for jobs, but also how people um, listing their jobs can find good archaeologists by reframing a little bit uh, the job uh, advertisements is the best way I can put it. Listings. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So I think that um, one of the things that we've talked about with Dan is, um, you know, like Alice mentioned with the field schools, having a guide of kind of best practices for field school, um, field school PIs or for even for students, you know, to like, what are green flags? What are red flags? I think similarly, uh, one of the things that we've talked about doing is, is doing uh, a similar kind of guide for job searches. And I think we're really cognizant about thinking about professional like CRM um, positions as well as academic positions. And, and I have an academic position, so I know a little bit more about the academic side of things. Um, but a lot of archaeologists are working in, in CRM and a lot of our students, especially, um, who are going like, you know, straight from degree are, are working actually in CRM, um, or compliance archaeology. And so I think some of the, one of the things that we had talked about is like a lot of these norms and, and requirements of jobs need to be, there needs to be like some institutional oversight or some institutional like support for making requirements that are um, reflective of the actual job that needs to be done. And also are kind of like actively being interrogated as like, are they, are they required? Are they actually required? Yeah. And that's something like, um, we, I mentioned a little bit between segments is, um, in my own experience as a non-disabled archeologist, having issues fitting the descriptions or the, the job requirements for experience, um, being a single parent for many years, I hadn't really managed or led 
a project from start to finish because of the limitations of I couldn't be gone for three months out in the field um, in a remote area. So, you know, being able to reframe my experience and I feel like that was a challenge in itself and having someone with a different set of experiences than what people traditionally think of as fit uh, leadership or a writing position or um, other types of work, you know, that you don't necessarily have to do, like how many, you know, 12 mile surveys have you done, uh, you know, 12 mile hikes a day surveys have you done over the last 10 years is I feel like not relevant for most um, CRM positions uh, unless you're, you know, a technician, but even as a technician, there are different types of work that you can do that isn't that. Um, And being able to, I feel like frame uh, job searches or job um, advertisements to express that or to fit that. So just as a quick um, rundown, as far as like, we do a lot of say cell tower surveys or desktop reviews, like you could have a technician specific to something in that field or something that fits a different type of requirement or even as a job seeker being able to um, kind of ask for in, we were talking about accommodations earlier, um, being able to fit their experience and their abilities to um, what the job actually is, um, as you mentioned earlier, and not just generalizing all Mm-hmm. all the archaeology at all the times for the last you know so many years well we're not all what six foot buff dudes i don't know yeah with long <laughs> ass legs where you're taking strides like, like my legs are half the size of yours man like slow down <laughs> katie uh, jump on in yeah i was just gonna say like i think that th- it's so important to have these kinds of this is this is what i'm talking about when i'm talking about cultural like a cultural shift in archaeology, um, you know. Now that you've had this experience um, as an individual, you can kind of bring some of that experience to your own um, context and to to be able to like kind of do good work um, at your own, you know, at your own firm to kind of change how that hiring process works, like individually and yeah. in in individual places. But then I think ultimately the thing that we have to be doing is like working together to kind of secure actual policy changes behind these individual actions. Because I think so often we rely on the goodwill of individual people to make change. And while that is so important, um, it is so important for us to take individual action. It is also like so crucial to make sure that those individual actions um, lead to like systemic change um, and lead to policy changes at the national and um, like even regional level. And so that's why I think like one of the things that I'm really interested in with Dan is like Dan provides some of that support. And my vision for Dan is really that Dan could be a kind of 
OMSBUD organization or um, like an advocacy organization that could actually help lobby for some of these changes with like the Society for American Archaeology um, or, you know, some of, some of the other big professional organizations that have standards about what's required and what's not um, in all of these processes, you know, both at the interview stage, at the actual um, job, with the actual job itself. Like there are ways to get this institutionalized, but it really requires us to do that work individually, collectively, um, and, and kind of beyond. Mm-hmm. And are you hoping to do more and more for the um, members and like doing more of the professional development series workshops and whatnot? Like where are you seeing a lot of this going in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think like, so we have a few upcoming professional development workshops that we're hoping to run. Um, I am organizing one on mentorship um, and I'm hoping to bring together in that mentorship um, workshop uh, intergenerational mentorship like teams. So bringing together people who have been mentored by other people. So bringing mentors and mentees um, who can share that kind of experience. Because I think one of the things, Kirsten, that you were saying is like one of the things that, that came up for me was thinking about mentorship and having like what you really needed at some points, I think, was someone to tell you like, hey, this is what to ask for. This is what to say. Um, yeah, and I yeah. think having someone who can like, you can bounce ideas off of and who can say, actually, you know, you can ask for an accommodation for that um, would be like, a, is a really powerful tool to have for, you know, in our, in our toolbox for each of us. Um, and I just think that so many people don't really think, I think for me, mentorship, like I... Um, I have like really struggled with mentorship, like as a being a mentor and, and also like receiving mentorship. I just, I like to work alone. And so I have like, I think I'm just, I'm a difficult person to, to work with sometimes. And so I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, so for mentorship for me is something that I'm like very interested in from a like academic kind of like intellectual perspective, because I'm like, okay, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? What am I doing right? How could I be better? Um, and so, so I've been really thinking about mentorship and, and the role of mentorship in our, um, in our experiences. And I think it's something that for so many people comes without effort and for so many people doesn't come at all unless, unless it's intentional. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the motivating, um, the motivating force behind so many professional organizations um, like Dan, but also like the Society of Black Archaeologists, um, is to provide mentorship and to provide those opportunities in places where you don't always get them. Um, and so, so I think for us having a mentorship workshop where we can eventually like helping pair people up, um, but also just like kind of showing people what those relationships can look like and what is a healthy, um, mentee-mentor relationship because so many of us have been in um, relationship, you know, mentor relationships that are not successful or that are not serving us in, in different ways. And so it's, I think it's really important to have a mentor who can, pro, you know, provide support mm -hmm. um, as it relates to like 
disability related things, but also all kinds of experiences that we have. I think that would be wonderful. And you also mentioned like different workshops on how to like request accommodations and um, working with all these things. I think your the the future endeavors for Dan, it, they sound really promising. And I definitely am looking forward to seeing those on the website and we'll definitely promote them um, as much as possible because I think they will be really, really helpful. Um, Alice, was there anything you would like to add? Um, yeah, I think... For me, I don't know, For I didn't really chime in earlier because I haven't worked in CRM and I've, you know, been in academia or working in, you know, coffee shops most of my life. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I'm really excited about Dan's, what Dan is working on, especially what Katie and Laura are working on regarding job workshops as someone who's about to go on the jo- academic job market in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really it's something that I've been struggling a lot with because I am thinking a lot about this is specifically academic job markets but one of the things that academic job markets jobs are often asking for is um, your service work or Mm -hmm. sort of your what your commitment to diversity equity and inclusion and what you've been doing with that and a lot of what I've done is disability related because I am disabled and it's sort of I'm trying to figure out right now as I'm drafting my materials how to walk that line of being like, well, I, you know, I've done all of this. I work with Dan and I founded a disabled student or grad students organization at my school. And I do things, I do a lot with UDL in the classroom. And I am trying to walk the line between like, this is all the disability activism I do, but also I am disabled. And that's a really important part of my identity and just figuring out where that balance is. Mm-hmm. So getting mentorship as someone who needs a mentor is something that's really exciting to me about the future of Dan. Nice. And I just wanted, I just wanted to jump in and say, like, I think that there are, there are so many benefits to including um, like diversity statements in job applications, but also there are a lot of risks because as people who are marginalized and multiply marginalized, um, it's, it can be a, a kind of dangerous place because you are um, kind of forfeiting some of your uh, legal rights to not being discriminated against based on these different categories. And, and diversity statements are really asking you to identify all the ways in which you may be discriminated against. Um, and so this is, you know, one of the kind of common critiques of, of diversity statements. But I think that it's, it's really um, difficult with disability because disability is not often seen as part of um, diversity. And Mm -hmm. so this is, I think where that question comes up of like, do I include, do I include um, disability related things in my, in my job application? Um, You know, part of my advice, of course, is just like, and I say this as someone who has a a permanent position, um, but the place that you, you know, the way you represent yourself in your application is, is the, the person that they are going to get. Right. And, um, and the person that they're going to be expecting at the job. And so if you are like hiding this huge part of who you are, um, and you're kind of potentially walking into a hostile work environment, you are going to have to be in that hostile work environment. So like, yes, you might have health insurance and you might have income, um, but you might also be like exposing yourself to this really toxic environment. And so I think that that's, that's just the thing that's really hard um, 
because it's kind of a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. in some ways. Well, and that definitely brings up the issue too. It's just like so much is put on those who are trying to make the change or make the change in general um, where it's like, well, those who are in charge or those just um, non-disabled, et cetera, like they can be part of the change too. They can be part of the work. And so in terms of the future and like how, how can those potentially outside of um, outside of Dan be, be helpful in making things more inclusive, make things um, better for those who are disabled and may need um, accommodations. What? How can we make a more inclusive field so that all the work is put on those who who need the accommodations? Yeah, I would just. I think one thing that I would I'd start off by saying is like, if you are in a position of power. You know, if you have some power over the way that job searches are run, whether that's in an academic setting or in a professional setting, um, like a compliance compliance positions, for example, doing making sure that you're when people are evaluating candidates that they're not making decisions based on um, the things that they should be making decisions on. And I think this applies to like all protected categories, whether that's mm-hmm. age, um, whether that's race, gender, sexuality, disability, um, being the person in the room saying, well, that's not really what we're evaluating people on. Um, and like reminding people, I think, because somebody has to stand up and say that in mm-hmm. um, hiring spaces. And so I think if, you, if you're in a position to do that, um, doing that can be great. And, and some of that work involves just like learning more. Right. So learning um, more about disability, um, if you're a non-disabled archaeologist and you want to learn more about our programming, we have a Friends of Dan listserv. So you can join our list and get lots of information um, through that listserv. Um, and we also have one for disabled archaeologists as well. And those are both on our website. And we will definitely link to the website on our webpage. But just for those listening, if you want to check it out, um, it is disabledarcnetwork.weebly.com. So disabled, A-R-C-H, network.weebly, which is W-E-E-B-L-E, bleh, I can't spell, W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. And like I said, we'll definitely link to that. Um, we are unfortunately towards the end of our segment and seriously thank you so much um kitty and alice thank you so much for joining us and um, talking about dan today really appreciate you coming on and definitely look forward to seeing um more of the different series and workshops that dan puts together seriously thank you so much thanks emily thanks for having us and for our listeners, you can connect with the Women in Archaeology um, podcast through our website at um, women, um, womeninarchaeologypodcast.com. And then you can contact us at 
sorry, the Women Archaeology Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at WomenArchies. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe um, in all the different ways that you can listen, whether it is on Spotify to iTunes. We appreciate you listening. And check us out on Patreon if you would like to support the podcast and all that we do as well. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.